ASIP, the voice of interventional pain management. The ASIP podcast is sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. The ASIP podcast is also sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. Hello and welcome to the September 2016 edition of the ASIP podcast. This is Tom Prigge of the ASIP staff, and on this podcast, we'll talk to Dr. Ashley Brenton of Prove Biosciences about genetic tests that can help you decide a patient's treatment plan. In the news segment, we'll have stories including a common NSAID that could be important in the fight against cancer, also a story about giving codeine to children, pain perception in patients with Alzheimer's disease, and many other pain-related stories. And uh, we'll end up with a story about an elaborate cheating scheme during medical school exams. In early September, approximately 50 members of ASIP, as well as staff members, including me, attended a great legislative session in Washington, D.C. We visited with many senators and members of the House, including multiple committee chairs. It appears that we are making substantial progress in making changes to the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or as people call it, MIPS. Now, here's what ASIP is proposing and what we lobbied for on Capitol Hill. Delay the implementation of MIPS by one year to January 1st, 2018, retaining 2019 as the penalty or bonus year, the performance year, and change participating in MIPS to three months per year, with 2017 serving as a training year. And we also told our elected officials about our concerns that some Medicare Advantage plans were not covering certain IPM procedures and that Medicare Advantage plans must offer a benefit package that is at least equal to Medicare's and cover everything Medicare covers. Now, that's the condensed version of ASIP's positions. For more details, you can go to our website and read all about it. That is www.asip.org. The ASIP podcast is sponsored in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. Up next... An interview with Dr. Ashley Brenton 
of proved Biosciences about genetic tests that you might want to consider for your patients. Stay with us here on the ACIP Podcast. We're happy to have with us here on the ACIP Podcast, Dr. Ashley Brenton, who is the Associate Director of Research and Development at Prove Biosciences. Ashley, talking to us from the West Coast. How are you doing this morning? Um, I'm great. How are you doing? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm ready to go. I've had a couple of cups of coffee, so I am wide awake. Uh, I know that we have a little bit of a time difference, but uh, I hope you've had your coffee and are ready for some questions. Uh, yeah, I'm ready. Um, I'm excited to uh, share what we're doing with, with all of your listeners. All right. First of all, tell us a, a little bit about yourself and what your position is there at, at Prove Biosciences. I said that you were the Associate Director of Research and Development. What exactly does that mean? So that's true. Uh, my background is that I have uh, a lot of experience looking at public, public health applications of genomics. And so here at Prove, I'm the Associate Director of R&D. I'm involved in product development, so which tests we put out, uh, the scientific validity behind them. I also direct the bioinformatics and data analysis team. And so we're constantly conducting clinical research, and that's one of our strengths here at Prove. And we use this information then to improve our algorithms. So our algorithms are constantly improving so that our patients get the best test results. And we also use this information to present at conferences and then to publish our results as well. So Prove Biosciences, uh, give us a, a little bit of history of, of this company and, and what Prove Biosciences is all about. Sure. So we were founded in 2009. Our headquarters are here in beautiful Southern California. We're in Irvine, although we are having a bit of a heat wave today. So I heard a nasty rumor it might break 100 degrees. Oh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> so we are the healthcare decision company. We are a commercial and educational leader in the research, investigation, and development of patent-protected tests that combine genetic and clinical data into reports that help physicians to individualize and optimize medication selection and dosing. Um, Go go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No. So we have a number of tests right now that are on the market. We're focused in pain. And our goal is really to improve patient outcomes. And one of our strengths is that we combine genetics along with phenotypic factors so that we have the most accurate algorithms. It sounds as though, uh, and and the reason that I I wanted to talk to you today is uh, one of the hot topics in medicine, uh, in all types of medicine, not just pain medicine, is what's being called precision medicine. And it sounds as though you folks are at the forefront of that when it comes to pain. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're focused on is precision medicine. We're taking it sort of a, traditionally, personalized medicine was focused on genetics. And certainly genetics play a huge role in the personalization or precision of medicine. But we're taking it a step beyond that by incorporating clinical factors and then conducting research to make sure that this information is actually applicable in a clinical sense. All right, let's get into some of the the nitty-gritty of what you have to offer to pain physicians 
in terms of, of treating their patients. The first thing that comes to mind is the metabolism, the slow metabolizers, the rapid metabolizers, and what I have seen in print many times, the CYP2D6. was that cytochrome P450 2D6. Yes. What exactly is that? So there are a number of cytochrome P450 genes. You mentioned 2D6. We also have 2C19, 2C9, and a number of others. And their job is to break down or metabolize drugs in the liver. So probably about 80% of drugs are actually metabolized in the liver before they can perform their mechanism of action on your body. And so the cytochrome P450 genes are responsible for that metabolism. And up to 50% of the population actually has mutations in those genes that can affect drug metabolism. And you can detect those? Uh... Absolutely. These are, these are well-established genetic markers. And uh, we actually have quite an extensive panel of cytochrome P450 genes. And we can analyze not just the presence of the genetic variants, but the combination of genetic variants and how that affects how much medication is available to the body and also the risk of side effects. So we can make dosing recommendations or say, hey, you know, this isn't a great medication because this patient for this patient because this patient is at an increased risk of serious side effects. It's better to choose an alternative medication. Now, the risk of, of opioid addiction has always been something that pain physicians have been aware of. And to my knowledge, it's always been psychological factors that they look at. But you say that there are genetic markers for opioid addiction risk. Absolutely. So the National Institutes of, on Drug Abuse have actually stated that about 50% of a patient's risk of addiction to an opioid is genetic. And so we look at a number of those genetic markers that predict opioid risk, and then also certain phenotypic factors that are, that are known risk factors, previous drug use, uh, mental health conditions that co-occur uh, can increase risk of addiction, and some other factors like that. And we've put all of this together into an algorithm that predicts with very high accuracy a patient's risk of opioid addiction. Well, now, the one that uh, I am most familiar with uh, that I think a lot of doctors use is, is called the SOAP or the SOPAR, the Screener and Opioid Assessment for Patients with Pain. Uh, it, it's quick and it's easy uh, to administer. How does that dovetail with what you're doing? Uh, do, are you saying that it could replace the SOAP or is it an adjunct to the SOAP? Well, so we're well aware that there are a couple of tools like the SOAP-R or uh, the opioid risk tool, the ORT, and those are widely available. They're easy to use. But what our algorithm does is it actually gives information beyond that. So it's a more accurate um, assessment of risk. And so this could, and I think possibly should, uh, replace some of those tools. In any case, it at least complements them and provides objective information. So those other tools that are available, they rely on patient recall and patient responses. And as we know, um, those could be subject to bias or you know, even, even mistakes. And so what we're doing is providing an objective measure of opioid risk as opposed to the more subjective measures that are currently available. 
Okay. Well, you've you've brought up a word. You've you've said it uh, twice in the last minute there, objective. Now, when it comes to pain, uh, and I I don't remember who this quote is from, but uh, it's been said that pain is what the patient says it is. And uh, so it's always been a a subjective thing, even if you were using either the numeric rating scale or a visual analog scale or or the faces scale. But you folks have an objective test for pain. Tell us about that. Sure, that's correct. Well, you know, I always think it's, well, funny and also disturbing that we have this serious medical condition, pain, and yet we evaluate it by smiley or frowny faces. I think that we can do a better job than that in evaluating a patient's pain. And so that's why we have the proof of pain perception. It's the proof pain perception profile. And it's a combination of genetics. So looking at levels of catecholamines, for example. So those are norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine. And how those affect pain perception, along with different factors like stress, which is well known to influence pain. Uh, sex, as well as ethnicity. So we combine those phenotypic factors along with known genetic factors. These are all very well established in the literature, sort of in our in our own proprietary algorithm that can predict with very high certainty a patient's pain perception. And this can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, we're saying that someone has low pain sensitivity or high pain sensitivity. And on both sides, it's important to realize this. So for a patient who has very high pain sensitivity, I always like to point out that that pain is very real to that patient. It doesn't mean that they're exaggerating. That pain is real. And so maybe we need to reevaluate our expectations for that patient following surgery or change medication recommendations. And then we also have patients who are have very low pain sensitivity. So this patient could get hit by a bus, for example, and stand up and say, "Eh, well, that was rather unpleasant. But that means that that patient may need more extensive diagnostic testing. That patient could have a broken leg and be be walking around. So it's important for us to have this objective information so that physicians can properly evaluate their patients and determine the right treatment plans for them. Well, okay, explain explain a little bit to to me. Let's say that somebody is using the subjective test that that they have now, the numeric rating scale, and and somebody says, oh, my pain is a 7 on this 11-point scale from 0 to 10. Do you give a a particular score or how – what does your report say on on pain perception? Sure. We give a pain sensitivity index. So a patient has low pain sensitivity, moderate, uh, average – moderately high or high uh, pain sensitivity. So there's not a numeric, it's it's, uh, just a descriptive term? So we actually have had a numeric rating in the past that was zero to five, but we've recently updated our algorithm to make it more specific. And what we actually found based on feedback in the field and from our physicians and patients was that the number wasn't nearly as important as what it meant. And so we decided to focus on that so that we could give more usable information instead of a number that could be potentially confused. Okay. And uh, let's, let's move on to some of, some of the other tests that you have, the, the opioid response test. Now, how, how is that different from uh, the rapid metabolism test? Sure. So when you're thinking about medications, 
there are two things that I always tell people to think about. The first is pharmacokinetics or what your body does to the drug. And the second is pharmacodynamics or what the drug does to your body. And so the opioid response test actually looks at both of those factors. So first, how, what is the prediction for how likely you are to respond well to the medication? So if everything else is equal, we'll just assume that everything is equal when it comes to your metabolism. How likely are you to respond? Do you have genetic variants that affect how you respond to this medication? Um, are you more likely to be a good responder or a poor responder? So that's the first question we establish. And then if you can see a list of drugs to which the patient is predicted to respond favorably, then you can worry about dosing information after that. So first we establish response, and then we look at the, the cytochrome genes to look at those pharmacokinetic variations that affect dosing. Now, so the, 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 this opioid response test, uh, does it uh, list in order what uh, a patient's most likely response will be? And is it just for the, the what I would call the major opioids? It is. It is for, we currently have five on our test. So we have okay. oxycodone, hydrocodone, tramadol, morphine, and hydromorphone. And that's because those are the opioids for which there is the best scientifically established information. So there are other opioids on the market, of course, and we receive questions all the time about, hey, why don't you have this one? And that's because we're doing this based on the strength of the evidence. So if there isn't good science to support this, we're not going to offer it. Okay. So it's not for every opioid, but it's for the most prescribed ones. Yes. It, it seems okay. Um, let's let's move on to uh, another uh, pain painkiller. Uh, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. You have a risk test for that that looks at uh, side effects. Yes, that's correct. So what's interesting is that when we think about over-the-counter medications, we say, ah, you can buy it at the drugstore; it must be safe, right? And in many cases, that's true. But there are serious side effects that patients and their physicians need to be aware of. And so our, our proof of NSAID risk test looks at the risk of bleeding or ulcers, so gastrointestinal issues. And that's sort of the, that's the one that I think most people know about. So there is a serious risk of ulcer. And so we determine the, based on the patient's genetics, the patient's risk of suffering from that side effect. We also look at cardiovascular risks, uh, aspirin resistance, as well as um, H. pylori gastropathies. And all of these are genetically based in, in yeah. your tests. That's correct for this test. Let's talk about uh, reimbursement. Are any of these tests uh, that, that you folks do reimbursable either by Medicare or any insurers that you're aware of? So we do receive reimbursement for about one-third of our tests. Reimbursement is always a tricky issue. Uh, we absolutely feel that these tests have value, that we know that they improve patient lives when their physicians use the results, and we know that physicians use our tests. So this is something that we are working on. Um, however, we really want patients to have access to this information, and we don't want patients to be out of pocket, a large sum of money. And in order to do that, um, we do conduct clinical studies. And in those, patients can participate 
and then they can receive the testing at no out-of-pocket cost to themselves. We also have some financial assistance programs available. So we're working on we're working on the reimbursement, and we do receive reimbursement for about a third of the cases. But uh, we would like to increase that, of course. Okay. Uh, but we know that you know it's sort of a it's a relatively new technology, and so we just need to demonstrate its worth. But we know that patients benefit from this, and we are eager to to allow more patients to benefit. All right. Uh, walk us through uh, just generally what the procedure is. Uh, let's say that a, a doctor has decided, yes, I want to test my patient for, well, just wh- whatever test he, he has decided upon. Uh, do they take a swab or do they do they spit in a cup? What's the procedure there? It is a simple cheek swab. Okay. Uh, I've done this myself, so it's just a cheek swab on the inside of the, the cheek. Uh, then you send the tube back to us. We process it in the lab, and within a week, you have your results along with personalized test reports. All right. And so Prove Biosciences, uh, you have a website where people can get information about this. Uh, and I, let's see, I, that's with two O's, I think we should tell people, correct? Correct. That's correct. Okay, so it's P-R-O-O-V-E, Prove Biosciences. You can look them up on the Internet, go to their website, and uh, all the information that folks would need about uh, how to avail themselves of, of your services will be right there. And we're, we're always happy to answer any questions that you have. Um, we love feedback from the field. So if you have ideas, we'd love to hear them or you have feedback on using our tests or how to make them more available. We're happy to listen to those ideas. Ashley, thank you so much. Dr. Ashley Brenton, the Associate Director of Research and Development at Prove Biosciences. Thanks for talking to us today here on the ACIP podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. And thank you to everyone listening. Let's take a look at some pain-related news that you might have missed. If you like creating computer programs in addition to practicing medicine, well then listen up. The Food and Drug Administration is conducting a naloxone app competition. Now, the FDA is teaming up with the National Institute on Drug Abuse and SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The competition is for creating a phone app that can connect those needing naloxone with those nearby who have naloxone. Now, one way to think of this is that it's like Uber for overdoses. According to Dr. Peter Lurie, the Associate Commissioner for Public Health Strategy and Analysis at the FDA, quote, The goal of this competition is to develop a low-cost, scalable, crowdsourced mobile application that addresses the issue of accessibility. As for who will award the $40,000 first prize for the best app, a panel of judges from the FDA, NIDA, and SAMHSA will make that determination. October 7th is the deadline for registering as a participant, and November 7th is the deadline for having a functional prototype. The NSAID celecoxib, better known by its brand name Celebrex, 
has been discovered to slow the rate of cancer growth. A COX-2 inhibitor that is used for pain and inflammation, celecoxib slows the growth rate of a specific kind of cancer in animal models. A team of scientists from the Florida campus of the Scripps Research Institute say their findings suggest the same effect could be seen on other types of tumors. The effect was seen on a relatively rare inherited form of cancer known as neurofibromatosis type 2. The report was published in the journal Cancer Research. Well, the debate over marijuana as a pain reliever continues, but according to a study published in the Journal of Psychiatry and Neuroscience, marijuana use causes laziness. Well, at least in rats. The THC in marijuana makes rats less willing to try a cognitively demanding task. For the study, 29 rats were trained to choose whether they wanted an easy or difficult challenge to get a sweet treat. The more difficult challenge resulted in a larger treat than the treat offered by the easier challenge. Now, before being given THC, the rats preferred the difficult challenge for the larger reward. After being given THC, they chose the easier challenge, even though it resulted in a smaller treat. According to Mason Silviera, the study's lead author and a Ph.D. candidate in the University of British Columbia's Department of Psychology, quote, What's interesting is that their ability to do the difficult challenge was unaffected by the THC. The rats could do the task. They just didn't want to. Codeine is unsafe for children and should no longer be given to them. According to a new report from the American Academy of Pediatrics, published online in their journal, Pediatrics. More than 800,000 patients under the age of 11 were prescribed codeine between 2007 and 2011, according to one study cited in the report. Otolaryngologists were found to be the most frequent prescribers of liquid codeine and acetaminophen blends, followed by dentists, pediatricians, and family physicians. According to the report, there were at least three pediatric deaths related to codeine in 2013, including a 10-year-old boy who had undergone orthopedic surgery, a 4-year-old who had a tonsillectomy, and a third child who received codeine in a cough suppressant. FDA data revealed 10 child deaths and three cases of severe respiratory depression attributed to codeine between 1969 and 2012. The FDA added a black box warning on codeine medications in 2013, warning doctors to avoid giving the drug to children undergoing tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, or adenotonsillectomy. The American Academy of Pediatrics has taken that a step further now, calling for a total ban on codeine for children. The search for a safer opioid continues. Researchers at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center in North Carolina believe that they have developed a painkiller that can relieve pain without causing physical dependence. Their findings were published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, so far, the drug has only been administered to 12 monkeys. The drug is called BU08028, and it's similar to buprenorphine. 
The compound blocked mu opioid receptors but did not have the same side effects seen with other opioids such as respiratory depression, pruritus, or adverse cardiovascular events. New research on Alzheimer's disease shows that the disease might affect pain perception. Researchers from Vanderbilt published their findings in BMC Medicine. Study participants were subjected to different levels of heat and asked about their pain level. First author Todd Monroe, a Vanderbilt assistant professor of nursing, said, quote, We found that participants with Alzheimer's disease required higher temperatures to report sensing warmth, mild pain, and moderate pain than the other participants. The study authors say that patients with Alzheimer's disease often have trouble with verbal communication and that doctors should use a variety of methods to evaluate their pain level, such as behavioral changes and nonverbal cues like facial expressions. And finally, a new report details the skyrocketing spending by health insurers for treatments associated with a diagnosis of opioid dependence or abuse. The report comes from Fair Health, a nonprofit data bank that provides cost information to the health industry and consumers. From 2011 to 2015, payments by insurers for these diagnoses grew from $32 million to $446 million, an increase of 1,375%. Payments for patients without an opioid dependence or abuse diagnosis averaged out to $3,435 a year, but that number jumped to $19,333 for those with a diagnosis. The ACIP podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. The ACIP podcast is also sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. Let's take a look at some state society news. The New York and New Jersey Societies of Interventional Pain Physicians will hold a joint meeting November 3rd through the 6th, 2016, at the Hyatt Regency in Jersey City, New Jersey. For more information and to register for that, just go to www.nysipp.org. Early bird registration is open right now for the California Society of Interventional Pain Physicians annual meeting. That meeting is set for Friday, November the 11th through Sunday, November 13th, 2016 at the exquisite Baccarat Resort and Spa in Santa Barbara, California. If you want to register for that, just go to their website, www.casipp.com. 
The ASIP Podcast is sponsored in part by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. And by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And finally, I hope this next story doesn't make you have flashback nightmares about taking the MCAT exam. A university in Thailand canceled its entrance exams after a small group of students were found using high-tech devices to cheat. A combination of high-tech glasses and smartwatches were used by students to cheat during the entrance exams for the university's College of Medicine and faculties of dental medicine and pharmacy. According to the Bangkok Post, three fake test takers were sent into the classroom to capture footage of the exam using the glasses, and then they left after the minimum required time of 45 minutes. They then emailed the questions to a tutoring institute, which then sent the answers to three other students via their smartwatches. The university did not name any of the parties involved, but the fake test takers admitted that they were paid about $170 each to record the test. Now, only one of the three students who were given the answers came forward and said that he paid a deposit of more than $1,400 to the tutoring institute for the smartwatch and would owe about $23,000 if he successfully passed the test. Well, that's it for this edition of the ACIP Podcast. Thank you once again to Dr. Ashley Brenton of Prove Biosciences for being our guest. When you get a chance, send me an email, tom, T-O-M, at A-S-I-P-P dot org, ACIP dot org. Thank you for listening, and please join me again next month for another ACIP Podcast.